The old world is dying. The new world struggles to be born. Now is the time of monsters. Um, with those sentiments originally uttered by Gramsci, although refined uh, in language by Zizek, uh, I welcome you to the Time of Monsters podcast, sponsored by The Nation magazine and available wherever um, you can listen to podcasts. Uh, this week, um, we're going to take on the Democrats. Now, usually on, on this podcast, we spend a lot of time talking about the right, um, you know, who are, I think, the preeminent monsters of this era. Uh, but I think that we'd be amiss in uh, not knowing that Democrats uh, have their own problems. And I think uh, we're starting to see some of that um, with two recent developments. Um, one is the inexplicable, bizarre, self-defeating decision of New York Governor uh, Kathy Hochul uh, to um, push for a judge who is very unpopular with her own party. Um, and that led to a kind of defeat um, in a Senate, uh, in, in a committee um, in New York State. Um, and but it, that that story is so persisting because it looks like, uh, you know, like uh, Captain Ahab, uh, Kathy Hochul does not know the meaning of the word no. Uh, and the uh, the other story is uh, they just announced uh, it looks like Joe Biden is tapping um, a gentleman by the name of Jeffrey Zients uh, to be his um, chief of staff, which is a very important. White House position. It's the kind of, you know, um, person who really is the gatekeeper and the agenda setter in the White House, um, uh, replacing uh, Ron Klein. And there's a lot of worries that Zients represents maybe the more centrist and corporate wing of the party. Uh, he himself has basically, uh, when he's not in government service, uh, is a kind of CEO of um, uh, uh, business enterprises that are known for sort of predatory practices. And um, like the Hochul uh, thing, um, uh, the Zients appointment, you know, maybe speaks um, of where the Democratic Party is uh, or where the leaders of the Democratic Party are, which might not be actually where the party itself is. And I think that could lead to problems. Uh, to talk about all this, I'm very happy to have on, um, uh, for the first time as a guest, um, uh, Alex Salmon, uh, political writer for Slate, um, who's written about some of this. Um, and uh, so let's start with the uh, the New York State. Um, what's your uh, sort of sense of um, what exactly the governor is doing? Well, I think at this point, she's she's basically courting a constitutional crisis, uh, which is a very extreme outcome of a series of kind of inexplicable or semi-explicable blunders. Um, yeah, I think, you know, the, the way that this starts is is uh, she actually, you know, gets this incredible windfall, which is that uh, Janet DeFiori, who is the highest ranking member on the Court of Appeals in New York, which is the highest court in New York State, uh, decides to announce that she's going to step down before her term is over. I think that was in August of last year. Uh, and that was a real surprise because she uh, was, um, I mean, a, cl a very close ally of Andrew Cuomo. She was someone who had basically led this conservative 4-3 block on the court uh, in New York. Uh, Cuomo had appointed all, all four of those <laughs> conservative judges. Um but she she announced she was going to step down. I mean, she was in the middle of an ethics investigation, which uh, maybe helped uh, help expedite things. But but her 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 announcement was a huge windfall for Hochul because not only did it mean that uh, Hochul was going to be able to to basically reconstitute the court to 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 create a four three liberal majority if she wanted to uh, just a handful of days into office, but it also gave her a chance to kind of like turn the page 
on the Cuomo era and kind of cast out some of the bad feelings about the horrible campaign that she ran, um, where she won by only five points, despite running in a state where Democratic voters outnumber Republicans two to one. Um, so it, it, it actually it comes from like a moment of of kind of like surprise optimism uh, and opportunity about what uh, she could do in as, as governor of New York. Um, and then, yeah, so then she runs this campaign. She does terribly there's a lot of grumbling uh within the party and then she produces her nominee for this position which is Hector LaSalle and uh and and things start to unravel <laughs> yeah 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 no I mean the, the, so she has an opportunity to change the courts and um I mean I to, to give sort of listeners who aren't in New York State a sense of it this is like you know imagine this sort of um a moment where Justice Scalia died and imagine if Obama had had a Democratic Senate majority. And so uh, Scalia dies. You can change a 5-4 uh, Republican court into a 5-4 uh, Democratic court. And then uh, Obama decides to nominate uh, Brett Kavanaugh. I, I think people, if that had happened, this this alternative scenario, I think people would have been a puzzled and b um, uh, angry. Uh, especially Democrats would have been very angry. Um, and so, I mean, I mean, I, I don't think it's too far to say because uh, Hector Lasalle uh, is a conservative, and and he did anger a lot of Democrats. Um, uh, I mean, it's often presented in the press that the progressives are angry, but it's very interesting that I think a wide swath of very mainstream Democrats aren't happy with him and maybe you want to explain why like this is a, a very bizarre um swing justice to put on uh a democratic governor to put uh on um especially when she doesn't have to because she has a majority in uh uh the um uh in the legislature right yeah absolutely and in a way it's almost worse than the kavanaugh analogy because we're on the other side now of that and we've seen what the court can do with this incredible conservative majority and hogle did this anyways so it's a it's a right it's almost like it's almost even more confusing the the yeah it's a really great point and and what happens is uh right so she makes this announcement and you know no surprise i think there's a combination of like ideology and ineptitude here um where, you know, it's not surprised that Hogel wants kind of a right wing or a rightish or a conservative uh, choice, but she names she names LaSalle as her pick. No surprise that progressives in New York State come out against him. That that wasn't, you know, uh, that's kind of a no brainer. The, the, the Democratic Socialist for America candidates uh, who are in the Senate were the first three uh, to say we won't support LaSalle. There's no way that makes a lot of sense. What was really interesting was that almost immediately thereafter, uh, the big labor unions came out and said, absolutely no way. We we can't support a candidate like this. And then the women's groups, the very mainstream uh, women's groups and pro-choice groups came out and said, there's no way we can support a candidate like this. And that actually is a really interesting uh, development because during the Cuomo years in New York, the, the sort of like progressive left and the DSA were often kind of at odds with the big mainstream liberal, liberal groups. And he played them off each other to some degree. And that was why the left was, you know, was kind of uh, weaker or fragmented in um, in New York in a way that was, I think, sometimes confusing for outsiders. Um, but in this situation, Hogel managed to galvanize uh, both the left wing activist groups and the mainstream liberal, liberal groups all in, in on this being, you know, getting them all on the same page to fight this this candidate and this nominee, which is really shocking. I mean, it was really like big moderate to conservative labor groups saying no chance and we're going to basically fight alongside 
the DSA against this candidate. And that really hasn't happened before. Yeah, no, no. I mean, it is um, in politics, uh, you want to like, you know, unite your side and divide the enemy. And uh, she, <laughs> uh, Hochul managed to do the the opposite of uh, uniting her enemies and perhaps uh, also dividing uh, her team. Um, so, I mean, the basic uh, I mean, there are many objections to Hector LaSalle, um, but I mean, I, I it does seem like from his record, there are court cases where you can kind of point to him being, you know, like not friendly to the uh, um, pro-choice side, not friendly to unions. Um, um, and there's also this, I mean, I think a very striking case um, uh, um, on uh, striking down a juror uh, or allowing a juror to be struck down uh, for having darker skin and arguing that having darker skin is not a protected category. Um, a decision that was like, you know, overturned. Um, uh, so, uh, so I mean, I, yeah, it, uh, it's fair to say that there was like a wide um, democratic um, uh, opposition, as you suggest. Um, but facing that, like, like they, she doesn't withdraw. She sort of like, you know, puts all her political capital in. And do you want to talk about, about that? Like just how much she's investing in this fight. Right. Yeah. Which is really fascinating. So coming off that election where she, she won by five points, um, she did not have a lot of political capital built up. So there were people all over New York and, you know, Albany and downstate in, in the city who felt like, Hochul at the top of the ticket really dragged them down, like, you know, people in the state Senate, in the legislature, even, you know, all you know, even in Congress who would have said, like, you know, it was really, really hard to win with Hochul at the top of that ticket because she did nothing for us. She didn't have a campaign. She didn't turn people out. And so already there was a feeling like, you know, we don't owe Hochul anything because, you know, we you know, if anything, we we helped her. Um, and and then so she makes this pick and and then goes, you know, starts cashing in whatever whatever uh, political capital she has whatever chip she has left and they aren't many um but she's you know trying to do something of the andrew cuomo impersonation where she's saying she's going to remember who had her back on this and she's making these these kind of intimidating calls and threatening people to you know to get behind her um and and to be fair like the the senate the democratic senate caucus in new york doesn't want this fight like at no point were they like, OK, you know, we're going to show Hochul how weak she is and we're going to dash this campaign or this nominee just to prove it. They kept saying, you know, please, please pick somebody else. Like, just set this set this nominee aside. And there are so many qualified candidates uh, that they would love to, to to support. But she kept going and 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 refused to set it aside um, and, you know, started ginning up support from confused, I would say, confusing corners of, of the political uh uh, arena in New York. Uh, and a lot of it was, uh, as we saw in the Senate Judiciary com uh, Committee hearing, a lot of it was GOP support um, and still was unable to get it through. Um, and so, you know, when, when this committee meets and they vote down LaSalle, um, you know, Hochul still has said that she won't set set aside this nominee. She's now threatening to sue. So, um, you know, it's, it's, yeah, at no point willing to just set this aside, pick somebody else, um, and has pushed it to just an extreme. Yeah, um, I'm glad you mentioned Andrew uh, Como, the uh, uh, former governor, because I mean, I think one way to make sense of Hoko's behavior is, she, as you said, she's doing a kind of poor um, Andrew uh, Como imitation. Uh, but I mean, he, he had a strategy which, even though he you know left in disgrace, uh, did work for him for a while of like you know being the tough guy. 
uh, uh, sort of forcing the left to like, you know, um, uh, swallow the medicine and like just like bend the knee and then and sort of divide and conquer of setting different forces in the Democratic Party against each other. So she's it seems like uh, my analysis is that she's like um, uh, that's the model that she knows. And uh, she's not aware that uh, A, she doesn't have the political capital to pull that off. But B, I mean, it might not even like work anymore. Like it does seem like the sort of Democratic Party, um, even the sort of more mainstream uh, uh, members who aren't like socialist, like they're a bit sick and tired of this kind of, you know, having a democratic governor who's a kind of like a basically um, a moderate Republican. Absolutely. Yeah, I think there are like two things to this, one of which is part of what's so vexing and confusing, I think, about this is that even someone like Hakeem Jeffries, who is, you know, very much a manufacturer of the New York political world of the of the Cuomo machine in some ways. He was a former Cuomo ally. He was someone who was on record uh, criticizing Janet DeFiori, the outgoing uh, chief judge of the appeals uh, appeals court. Uh, he, he was incredibly critical of her. He, he, you know, he cheered when she left. He was, you know, there, there was kind of this widespread uh, understanding that the court had gone too far right, that what Cuomo had done to the court was was an atrocity and they had to uh, reverse course. And so Jeffries, who doesn't tend to sort of like do these sorts of things with conservatives, was very, very critical of De Fiori. Um, but then, of course, when Hochul came calling, looking for some support for LaSalle, who, according to everybody else in Democratic politics, was the same as De Fiori uh, in a lot of ways. And LaSalle himself put De Fiori on his application as his number one recommender for the job. Um, then, of course, Hakeem Jeffries was out there supporting uh, Hochul and supporting LaSalle. That is one of the more confusing things. I, we can talk about that more if you want to. Um, but I think the other thing that's really worth pointing out is that for some reason, uh, some of these New York Democrats have a really hard time with the sort of object permanence of the of the political climate where there are all these shocks to the, to the New York Democratic machine that prove that it's not very strong anymore. And the first was Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez winning her election in 2018. That should have totally recalibrated things and and proven to New York Democrats beyond a doubt that the, like the Cuomo machine is not as strong as it once was. Um, and then these things keep happening over and over and over again for the last five years. Um, and and still they're surprised that like the machine is not as strong as it as it once was. And you can't just pick someone regardless of 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 where they fall in the political spectrum and force them through against the will of the Senate and the legislature and the activist groups and the, the, the unions and everybody else. It just doesn't work like that anymore. And it's so funny to see, you know, Hochul and her advisors are obviously living in this pre-2018 world still, and they can't quite accept the fact that it's not the way that it was. Yeah, no, no, that's that's a really good uh, analysis. And I think I think sort of it fits in with my meta analysis of what happened in the midterms, where like I think you saw in um, across America in places where the sort of traditional democratic machine had adapted and was willing to work with grassroots activists um, and the new wave of um, activist energy, um, the Democrats did very well. Like I think Pennsylvania is a good example. Uh, Michigan is a good example. Um, and New York kind of stands apart from that because it has this history of a of a sort of sclerotic machine that is like actively hostile to like any grassroots activism. And uh, I think that really hurt the Democrats. It probably cost them the National Party, like, you know, control of the House. 
Um, so, and it, I mean, if one takeaway from this uh, uh, whole fiasco, which is an ongoing fiasco, is, is that it seems like the, yeah, the, the, um, the New York machine is sort of incapable of learning. Like, and, and it still is still, as you say, has this pre-2018 mindset. Um, but that's probably a good segue to the um, other um, aspect I wanted to talk about, because I think on the national level, we see the same thing. Um, with uh, Biden and the chief of staff. I mean, um, the outgoing chief of staff, uh, uh, Ron Klain, you know, not somebody from the um, left of the party, but notable, I think, for like making significant outreaches uh, to the more progressive Democrats and trying to, you know, run a unified uh, party and trying to integrate the different factions of the party, um, including progressives. Um, I, I think uh, he deserves a lot of the credit for the successes that Biden has had in the, the last two years. Uh, so now that he's out, um, uh, it seems like, uh, the, the, you know, like the new fellow that's coming in um, is uh, does not have that. There's someone coming, you know, from a sort of very corporate background and I don't think has ever really shown an ability to um, deal with the uh, uh, left. But uh, your thoughts on that? Yeah, definitely. It's yeah. Again, it's it's an interesting, right? It's like why why aren't these lessons sticking? It's it's picking Ron Klain. Klain did a great job of 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 you know of of outreach to these progressive groups in D.C. to the grassroots. In a weird way, it's like just given how well things went in the midterms, you would say that this formula seems to be working, right? That, that if you can figure out a way to not antagonize the progressive groups to the utmost degree, keep them in the fold, address some of their concerns. You do kind of have a winning coalition. And and then, you know, when Klain steps down and they pick uh, Jeffrey Zients, I very much of that old of that old model. I mean, the both the private sector and the public sector work, I think, is like littered with uh, lie items that would make you really, really concerned about what um you know what what he'll do in that position obviously chief of staff is incredibly important but also it's 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 another sort of you just have to ask the question like is this an own goal for biden and the biden administration i mean is the sort of line that's going around dc right now as well it's okay that zians has this corporate background he came you know he's a he's a private equity creature um who made a ton of money on wall street invested in some firms that were uh caught the attention of the, of the doj for uh for defrauding Medicare. There's a lot of stuff in there that, that would raise an eyebrow. Um, but the Biden administration has spent the last two years slamming private equity. I mean, they've really done that more than almost anybody else. They've said that like, these are the firms that are, that are making the American dream impossible that have, you know, have made upward mobility so difficult. And we're going to, you know, we're going to battle them on tax policy, on monopoly policy. And then here you have this guy who, who, who came up through that, who made all his money doing that, who is on the board of directors of Facebook. And at the same time, you know, we're saying that the Biden administration is going to pursue this antitrust bill against big tech. It, it's just really hard to reconcile. And it does feel like, again, uh, a huge step back in that sense towards a, a, you know, a mode of operation that is very much reminiscent of the Obama years. And, and that's obviously where, where Zian's really, you know, made his reputation in DC was during the Obama years as well. Yeah, no, no, he does seem like a throwback. And um, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned uh, sort of like Biden, because I mean, I think the Zients 
uh, being elevated to chief of staff, like is in contrast with who Biden has tried to be uh, in the last two years. I mean, I think one of Biden's successes has been to try to revive a type of labor liberalism and to make, um, you know, I mean, there've been obvious failures along the way, like um, the uh, railway strike. But in general, I mean, he's had an administration that's unusually friendly towards labor, is unusually critical of um, uh, private equity. Um, and politically, I mean, the Democrats uh, reap a lot of benefits. I mean, like, you know, Obama won re-election by painting uh, Mitt Romney as this sort of, you know, uh, Bain capital. And, you know, when Bain comes to town and and now, you know, they have it as, as a chief of staff, someone, uh, you know, who's of that world. It seems to like undercut a lot, a lot of their messages. Um, but I mean, yeah, well, as you said, there, there's a kind of line going around. Well, it doesn't really matter. Like it's not, um, uh, you know, it's, it's just, a, he's just a businessman. Do you want to talk about, I mean, I think there's been some very powerful critiques, especially coming out of Revolving Door Project, you know, about his background and but why, you know, one would not want someone like this in government. Do you want to talk about, you know, like why there's this concern? Yeah, definitely. Right. It's, it's, he, I mean, I, I was going back and reading some old clips in the Wall Street Journal from 10 years ago when uh, when Zients was uh, working at the Office of Management and Budget for Obama. And, and and the quotes that like corporate CEOs were giving the journal about Zients was that like he was this incredible ambassador for the business community that like a number of them thought that he was a Republican based on how they interacted with him. And this is and these are verbatim quotes. Um, and so. You know, to bring someone in like that into the White House now, when, as you said, there's been this attempt to sort of re-envision uh, this labor liberalism tradition. Uh, and certainly there's been a huge turn away from Wall Street. I mean, that, that's just uh, the, the embrace of Wall Street under the Obama administration is just not there under Biden. Um, and and the, yeah, the line that like, oh, it doesn't matter because the, they're not going to pass a lot of legislation. It's more about implementation now. But I mean, I would I would argue that like the implementation is incredibly important, like whether or not these new tax policies are actually implemented in a way that gets these corporations to pay 15 percent. I think that's I think that's pretty important. I don't know why someone who uh, was like the the, the goodwill ambassador to the business community is the person who's going to turn the screws on that and make sure it's 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 tight and in place. It's and you can just kind of go down the list and, and you know, these monopoly policies that that like the FTC is pursuing. Um how can you know how can the FTC act in one way and then you have someone who has you know benefited so inordinately from monopolistic practice then uh be doing the White House side of things? It's just it's really hard to even sort of see how that implementation strategy would work. And so I think this line that doesn't really matter or that like, you know, maybe we need to it's a good sign that they're gonna team up with the business community to fight against Republicans. I I don't I I really struggle to see that and 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 I especially struggle to see it because Zian's really uh, cut his teeth doing fiscal cliff negotiations in 2013, and and they were a catastrophe. I mean, he did everything wrong in a lot of ways. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think that's uh, that whole history is worth going into. Um, and um, well, I mean, there's two things I want to hit on implementation. Uh, one is that he actually has a track record inside government. Um, in terms of like overseeing uh, COVID under Biden um, and uh, other activities under Obama. Um, and as you mentioned, as the fiscal cliff stuff is very concerning, precisely because we know the Republicans are going to use the debt ceiling. They're going to try to like, you know, 
force uh, Biden uh, to do um, austerity. Uh, and the, uh, yeah, I mean, what does, what does, the, I think it's worth going over his record. What does his record show? Is he the sort of, you know, wartime fighter that you need uh, in these battles? Right. And if you read like the DC press right now, it's all anonymous, anonymously sourced quotes about how he's like this logistics warrior and like this incredible maven of project management. And, and right. If you look at the, if you look at the track record, I don't, I don't know if you see that. I mean, the, the, the thing that he did under Biden so far was he, right. He's the COVID czar. It's been a year doing that. And some would say, you know, he did a good job because the initial vaccine rollout was, was fairly successful uh, but he also, you know, there was a lot of criticism about that approach that, that the Biden administration took. And like the fact that it got totally caught flat footed by both the Delta and the Omicron waves, the fact that there didn't seem to be any strategy on testing until there was, you know, the the public outcry about them sending tests in the mail. Um, short of that, there was really nothing on, on that front. They didn't secure any money for long term COVID uh, campaigns or strategy. Um, and then. You know, it just at this point, right? The, the approach has basically been like, all right, well, it would let her rip, and and uh, that's that. Um, yeah, I mean, I mean, there's an argument to be made. Um, I think uh, Eric Levitz sort of made it that just you know, given the American political system, uh, you know, and then the way in which uh, COVID has become polarized, maybe no one could have done a good job. But I, I have to say, like the United States you know, had a very bad reputation under Trump uh, and it continues under Biden. I mean, like if you look on an international scale, uh, you know, like the American performance on COVID uh, remains dismal. And I, I just don't think, you know, like it almost seems like, um, you know, falling upwards that you have someone who is like, you know, maintained one of the world's, you know, um, the worst responses of a major industrial country to COVID uh, is now going to have like one of the most powerful positions in Washington. Like, like, it's like, even if you say like, no one could have done a good job, it's just like, well, maybe, but you know, he's the one that did that job. Right. Right. And he gets the promotion at the end of it. All right. I, I, and I'm trying to be charitable here, but I, 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 you know, it's right. There are 700,000 people have died from COVID since Biden took over or more. I mean, that's, you know, uh, the, the reality is is grim and maybe it's a horrible job, but at the same time, it's, you know, to do a horrible job at a horrible job doesn't mean much and certainly doesn't, uh, you know, it, it doesn't make the case why that person should be then elevated to, you know, one of the most powerful positions in Washington. Um, and yeah, I mean, you go back back through the track record further, the, the fiscal cliff negotiations. I mean, I think those were one of the lowest points in the Obama administration generally. I think even Obama people now would say like, that was that wasn't great. Like we really had a super strong hand, played it terribly, um, ended up, you know, this is obviously there's a lot happening, but the, you know, they ended up giving away uh tax increases on the very rich for basically nothing. There were all these austerian measures put in place. There was no reason any of that had to happen. Um, I think that like the line we're getting now on that is that like, well, we did it wrong that time, but now we've learned and now we're going to do it right. And there are a lot of people who are in the Biden administration who came from the Obama administration who said that on a bunch of stuff. They've been like, well, we may have got it wrong in the past, but now we're going to do it right. Um, and it, and I hope that's true. I just don't feel like that's a super compelling line for why someone needs to be promoted into a incredibly influential and powerful position. Um, and, you know, we'll see what the resolve looks like. I mean, I, I, I don't know. Uh, when the chips are really down, if, if that's going to act, it's going to happen. Yeah, no, I mean, yeah, one doesn't necessarily want to give absolute predictions. And like to say, 
uh, on the side of those uh, Obama uh, former Obama spokesmen or these current Biden spokespeople. Uh, um, I mean, I think it is the case that like Biden at least has learned stuff. He hasn't tried to do as much bipartisan outreach um, or at least bipartisan surrender uh, in the way that the Obama did. Um, I mean, Biden has actually gotten some bipartisan measures, but I, th I think he's much less inclined to like sort of, you know, uh, give up stuff for nothing. Um, so, you know, I mean, like maybe if Biden is in charge, but, but, but uh, you know, like I, I think the caution that we're trying to int introduce here is should also be borne in mind. Like, you know, like this is someone who has, um, at least in governments, a sort of track record of failure. In the business world, he has a track record of success, but that success is through sort of predatory corporations that have basically, you know, defrauded the government. I mean, this is not a, um, a, a hyperbolic comment. <laughs> the companies that he's run have been repeatedly fined for uh, defrauding the government. And that seems to be the business model of a lot of these um, firms uh, taking advantage of Medicare. Like, you know, try to see what you can get away with in terms of billing. And then the fines are kind of like a, a little tax that you have to pay at the end. Uh, so I, I, none of that, I mean, to me is reassuring. I, I don't know, like, is there is there any other sort of consolation you can offer aside from what I just said? Um, I... Uh... I'm hard pressed to think of one. I mean, I I look I look through the short list. There was a short list that was uh, published in the Times. I think uh, I don't know Saturday or Sunday, um, and there were no names on that list that made me feel especially uh, confident. So I I at least you know if we're going off of of what <laughs> who else was up there, it's not like we came away with someone who was far worse than anybody else who was at the finish line, um, which is maybe the closest to a silver lining that I can come up with. I mean. I think that, uh, yeah, I don't know. I just think there was a real lack of imagination in this pick. And I think a lack of um, sort of like understanding of, of uh, again, of, of where we're at politically. Um, and, you know, the the list, it was like, you know, S Steve Ricchetti, Anita Dunn, Susan Rice, any <laughs> of those people would have been, yeah, uh, yeah. you know, a nightmare for any progressive. Uh, and, you know, maybe, maybe the best thing you can say is that like uh, Biden kind of did run on, to some degree on like, you know, he did some stuff wrong, but I'm going to do it right this time. And he has kind of done that. He has kind of changed. Uh, does that mean his inner circle is also receptive to that line of thinking? I hope so. Um, I don't know. I hope so. <laughs> yeah. 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 No, I mean, yeah, that's a good, uh, good to, to sort of end on. I mean, maybe it sort of speaks to the sort of, you know, um, I think uh, we're sort of in, in uh, intermediate stage or inter regium uh, where, you know, like to some degree, uh, the Democrats have learned that they have to change, but it's still the same old people uh, that are kind of at the very top levels of the party. And a lot of their habits can lead them astray. I think we saw that in New York State, and we might be seeing that in Washington as well. So I, the, that, that might be the kind of note to end on. Uh, it's a kind of a mixed record. You know, uh, are our Democrats learning? A little. They're, they're learning a little. Uh, are they learning enough? I don't know. Uh, but uh, on, that, on that note, uh, uh, I want to end the podcast uh, and then th th uh, thank um, Alex for being here. Uh, it was a, a very lively and uh, informative discussion. Yeah, thanks so much for having me.